1 Samuel chapter 28. In your Bible, I think you'd agree with this statement. <coughs> Ignoring what's important comes with consequences. How many ignore your alarm clock? <laughs> that might mean you, you face the consequence of being late to work or at best have to be stressed out getting there. How many have, you, you have a spouse that, that sets their alarm before you to get up before you, but they don't get up when their alarm goes off. And they, they tend to hit snooze two or three times. You want to raise your hand and tell on your spouse right now? I'll pray for them and I'll pray for you. Thank you. I see that hand, Marlon. It's the first time I've ever seen you lift your hand to heaven in church. That's, that's awesome. I guess you just got to tell on your wife. You'll get an opportunity to praise. <laughs> you are in trouble, man. Yeah, I'll pray for you. You can go to work, ignore policies. You can ignore safety procedures. That, that might get you injured. Might get you fired. You can ignore the, the check engine light in your car. Might leave you stranded. Or, or if you're like me, you could ignore the low fuel indicator. And stress your wife out. You can ignore the road signs on the highway, which may result in a fatal accident. Or you can, you can ignore, if you want, the 20 mile an hour speed limit on 15th, if you want. I mean, if you want. <laughs> I thought I'd bring that up. I'm trying to be relevant, you know, to, to what's going on in our community. Um, but you might get a speeding ticket if, if you do that. Don't go over 20 in the hospital zone. <laughs> Ignoring your doctor's advice may result in health complications later down the road. Now, let's get more serious. Ignoring the, the needs of your spouse may result in a very distant or, or even fractured relationship over time. Young people, ignoring your parents' advice might, not, it's not, I shouldn't say might, will lead to a mountain of mistakes that makes your life harder than it was intended to be, even if your parents are imperfect. See, it's, in, it's just true that, that, that ignoring what's important comes with consequences so what about ignoring the most important thing in your life? The word of God. What kind of consequences do we face when we choose to ignore God as he's speaking to us? Well, the text is going to show us. If you've been studying 1 Samuel with me, then, then we left off a couple weeks ago with David attempting to run from his problems. And he found out real quick that when you run from your problems, you usually run into bigger problems. Ran into such a big problem that he was offered a spot in the Philistine army to fight against his own people. We're left wondering, will he accept that offer? If not, how's he going to get himself out of this pickle? And just about the time we're going to find out, the Holy Spirit inspires the narrator to cut off David's story and start a new one. It's as though you're watching a, a ball game. It's the fourth quarter. The team is driving down the field. They're about to kick the game-winning field goal, and the broadcast is interrupted by breaking news. Apparently, something was more important for the public to know at that moment than whether or not the kicker made the field goal. And, and apparently, the Holy Spirit wanted to interrupt David's story to give us something more important at the moment. It's Saul's story. And this part of Saul's story is very sad. 
He continues to ignore God's word and he experiences the most severe consequence imaginable. What we're going to do tonight is simply walk through the text verse by verse for a few moments. We're going to glean an understanding of what Saul's story was here that the Holy Spirit wanted to tell us. And then we're going to make quite a bit of application at the end. Look at verse number three. Some preface statements from the narrator. He says, now Samuel was dead and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. Here's another detail. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Now, this seems like a rare way to start a story. Two very, well, it seems like disconnected details, but these are important details. He first tells us Samuel's dead. Who was Samuel? He was the main prophet in the book of 1 Samuel. He was the, the main guy through which God spoke to the king. He's not around anymore. He's not available anymore. The second detail is that earlier in Saul's kingship, he drove out all the worldly and wicked sources of guidance that were not in agreement with or in accordance to the word of God, such as witchcraft and, and familiar spirits and other demonic practices. That was a good leadership decision on Saul's part. He didn't want any demonic influence to be available to himself or his people. Now, these will be two important details as you follow along with me in the story. Verse 4. And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they pitched in Gilboa. Now this gives us the, 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 the geography. It gives us the, the outlay of the land. The Philistines were, were, were after a particular trade route that ran through Shunem. If they could overtake and possess this trade route, they could control everything that went through it. It would be a huge economic victory for them. But the Israelites weren't going to just give it up. So they gathered over by Gilboa. You have the Philistines on one side, are you picturing this? And you have the Israelites on the other. And in between lies this trade route that they're both after. Verse 5. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. Apparently, Saul was positioned at a vantage point at Gilboa where he could see the, the, the Philistines' military base down at Shunem. And when he did, he noticed the sheer amount of military force they were accumulating to take over this trade route. And it scared him to death. Yet what he did next was actually surprising because verse 6 is going to tell us he inquired of the Lord. This isn't like Saul, is it? He took matters into his own hands. He ignored God's advice so often, yet this time he decided to pray. This time he decided to talk to God. This time he decided to ask the king of heaven for advice. But surprisingly, God wasn't interested. Verse 6, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not. Neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. God usually communicated to Saul and his people through one of three means, through dreams, such as how he communicated to Joseph in a dream, how he communicated to, to Daniel in a dream. He communicated through Urim. There's the Urim and the Thummim that, that, that was attached and connected to the priest. And then he communicated through the prophets like Samuel. 
But the verse says when Saul cried out to him, God wasn't communicating to him through any of these means. Now, he wasn't communicating through the prophets because Samuel was dead. But not only that, it's because when the younger prophets at the school, of the prophets observed Saul's behavior and they heard Samuel's words of judgment on his life, they abandoned him. And for sure he wasn't going to hear from God via the Urim because the Urim was connected directly and solely to the priest's garment. And just a couple of chapters ago, Saul ordered Doeg to kill all the priests. They're all gone. Their wives are slain. Their infants are even killed. And the one priest that remained alive ran from Saul and joined David. So it might sound surprising at first to you that God didn't answer somebody that was calling on him. But before you blame God's inattentiveness on God, consider Saul's track record. It hasn't been a very, he hasn't been a very good listener. Saul has dug his own grave. He's ignored God. He's pushed away all God's normal methods of communication. He, he has lived in willful defiance of God's word, his entire kingship, basically. And now all of a sudden he wants God to listen to him. Hello, that's not how God works. God's not a genie in a bottle. We don't get God to come to us on our terms. We go to God on his and Saul violated those terms one too many times. God was choosing, this is very serious, to ignore Saul. Because Saul for so many years had chosen to ignore God. Hear me, you can't ignore the word of God and expect to not face consequences down the road. When you ignore God, listen, your fellowship with him will be greatly hindered. We'll come back to that because that's really the main point of the text. When Saul couldn't get God's attention, you would think, wow, something's wrong with my relationship with God. He's going to fall on his knees and repent. He's going to confess. He's going to humble himself. But instead, you know what he did? He chose to run to the same demonic sources of guidance that he had banned from the land earlier. That's why verse 3 is important. Look at verse 7. Then said Saul unto his servant, seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. Something interesting here is that Saul had ran every one of those witches out of the land years earlier. Yet when he really wanted to find one, he, he, she was only six miles away. I have found that the devil has a very unique way of making sin available whenever we want it bad enough. Oh, he's powerful. He's crafty. The particular type of witchcraft that Saul was seeking was called, and I hope I pronounce this right, necromancy. This is where these, these witches would mediate a conversation with the dead. They would dig pits in their houses, walk down into these pits and talk to the dead for people. And they would earn money for doing this. Saul said, find me one of those. And they found him one. Verse 8 and 9, and Saul disguised himself. Because indoors, it's enemy territory. He put on other raiment and he went and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit and bring me him up whom I shall name unto thee. And watch how the woman responds. She says, behold, thou knowest what Saul hath done. She doesn't know that Saul's the one standing before her. 
And she says, you know that he, he's, already, he's already told everybody that this is illegal. He's ran them out of the land. He's cut off those that have familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore then layest thou a snare for my life to cause me to die? You see what she's doing? She's like, you're trying to set me up. You're trying to get me in trouble. So she's skeptical. But look what Saul did. Something wicked. And Saul swear to her by the Lord saying, verse 10, as the Lord liveth, there shall be no punishment happen to thee for this thing. Then said the woman, whom shall I bring up unto thee? And he said, bring me up Samuel. Watch here. Saul says, does something so wicked in order to get his way. You know what he did? He twisted the word of God to fit his agenda. That's what is called taking the Lord's name in vain. That is the essence of breaking the fourth commandment. It's so much more than saying God's name when you're angry. It's using God's name or God's word in a way that he didn't mean for it to be used. Saul swore by the Lord that this woman could sin and get away with it, even though back in the Old Testament law, God had already forbidden this kind of witchcraft. Listen, that's wicked. And furthermore, it reveals how much Saul disregarded the word of God in his life. The woman believed him. She said, who do you want me to raise from the dead and communicate with? And Saul said, Samuel. Samuel. The same prophet that Saul had ignored basically his entire kingship. The same prophet that already pronounced Saul's dynasty as being over because of his persistent rebellion. Yet all of a sudden, Saul wants to listen. All of a sudden, Saul gets in a crisis and he wants the prophet's help. And miraculously, this is, this is a miracle. Samuel appears. Verses 12, look. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. And the king said unto her, Be not afraid. For what sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw God's ascending out of the earth. And he said unto her, What form is he of? And she said, An old man cometh up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. A lot of people disagree about what happened here. A lot of people don't know, like, does this mean that people back in this day could literally raise people or images of people from the dead? What they did was, most people think that it was a sham what they did. Some people think that this is proof that what they did was legit, that it was demonic. And that the devil has great, great power. I don't know what side I lean on, but I know the woman screamed. She screamed either because she was scared at what she saw because it's never worked before or because what she saw and heard from Samuel made her realize that the man who asked for Samuel was the king. And she was about to be in big trouble. Either way, the greater point is this. Samuel's here. And he has a word for Saul. I don't care how he got there. Was it God that put him there? What was, was it a demonic practice that put him there? I tend to think it was God. And look at verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? So he said, I mean, I was taking a good nap. Saul answered, I'm, I am sore distressed. I'm in a crisis. 
For the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me, and answereth me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee, that thou mayest make known unto me what I shall do. Then said Samuel, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me? Seeing the Lord has departed from thee, and has become thine enemy. And the Lord hath done to him as he spake by me. For the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thine hand and given it to thy neighbor, even to David. Because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executest his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. I don't know if you remember back in chapter 15 when Samuel threw God, God threw Samuel rather, told King Saul, I want you to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Don't spare anybody or anything. And what did Saul do? He spared the king whose name was Agag. And he spared the best of the livestock. I can't re-preach that message and tell you why, but it was disobedience. And now Samuel in chapter 15 he pronounced Saul's kingship as over. No more warnings. No more mulligans. No more take backs. You had drawn the last straw. Jonathan, your son, will not continue your dynasty. God has chosen him a king by the name of David. And now Samuel comes back from the dead. And what does he rehearse? That speech again. He pronounces God's judgment on him and he gives one more detail that he didn't give in chapter 15 in verse 19 of our chapter. He says, tomorrow you're going to be delivered into the hands of the Philistines. At that point, Saul got afraid, so afraid he lost his appetite. The rest of the chapter just tells how, how, how the, the, the woman had to talk him into eating before he left the next day. That's how the story ends for now. It's going to go right back to David, but then it's going to jump back to Saul. And we'll see the end of his life in a couple of weeks. I want to recap. Watch here, please. There was a time in Saul's life when he had access to God. He had communication with God through the prophet Samuel. We've already studied that. He had communication through the priests and the Urim and the Thummim and, and through dreams, God, God would be willing to speak to him. All of this fellowship with God was available. He had every opportunity to be led by God's word. But he got to the point where he wanted to do his own thing. He wanted to operate his own way, independent of God and his word. He didn't do this just once. He persistently ignored God's word, which led him eventually to some major sins of disobedience. Now he finds himself in a crisis and he all of a sudden wants God to pay attention to him. But God refuses to communicate. His fellowship with God is greatly hindered because he ignored God for so long. Sadly, the consequence... For Saul ignoring God was God eventually ignored him. And that's my burden that I want to get across to you tonight from this text. The Holy Spirit led the writer to interrupt David's story with this breaking news of Saul's life. I believe to warn us of the consequences we too will face for persistently ignoring God's word.
Now, as New Testament believers, the way God deals with us is different than some of the ways he dealt with King Saul. But the principle is the same. When we ignore God's word, we too will face a consequence. Just like if you ignore your boss or you ignore your spouse or you ignore your children or you ignore your parents or you ignore your doctor. When you ignore what's important, there will always be consequences. So then what's the consequence according to scripture for the New Testament believer for ignoring God's word as it relates to this text? I'm going to say it in a phrase and I'm going to go to work proving it to you in application. When you ignore God's word, he will ignore your prayer. That seems real tough, tough, tough to swallow at first. Unconfessed sin, willful disobedience, ignoring God's clear word will hinder your communication with him. Hear me, I'm not saying you will lose your relationship with God. Once you're saved, you are always saved. But your fellowship with him will be greatly hindered. How do you know? Well, let's start in Isaiah chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither his ear heavy that he cannot hear. In other words, his inattentiveness isn't because he's incapable of hearing you. Here's the problem. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he, watch this, will not hear. Notice it didn't say that God cannot hear. It says that God will not hear. When you choose to ignore God's word and you don't repent of it and you do it persistently, at some point, God will choose to not listen to your prayers. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Again, it's not that the Lord cannot hear you. He chooses to not listen to you. That's the consequence you face for ignoring him. The, the psalmist said, if you regard iniquity in your heart, that word regard means to look upon something with permissiveness, to look upon something with approval. And isn't that what King Saul was doing? Back in chapter 15, he spared Agag and the best of the livestock. And if you remember, when the prophet confronted him about it, he justified it and he rationalized it and he minimized it. He regarded what he did as something that was okay to do. In this chapter, when he didn't hear from God and he went to, to the familiar spirits to raise Samuel back from the dead, he told the woman, the Lord's okay with this. The Lord, you, you won't be in trouble with, with God. His word, it's okay, we can make an exception. He was making light of sin. Listen, if you look upon your sin with permissiveness, something God has clearly said in his word is not right, but you say it's okay. If you ignore God's word about your sin, please hear me. Don't expect your prayers to make any kind of difference. In fact, I'm going to go one step further based on the book of Proverbs. God doesn't just ignore our prayers. Our prayers become something he hates. Proverbs 28, 9. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law. You get the picture there? 
You go just like this. Even his prayer shall be abomination. When we think of prayer, we never think of prayer as something God hates. Never. Prayer is innocent. Prayer is holy. Prayer is righteous. Prayer is sacred. God always welcomes our prayer. Not if we stop listening to his word. The kind of prayer that God hates is prayer that comes out of the mouth of someone that has stopped listening to him. Whenever God tries to speak to us, but we ignore him and then have the audacity to expect him to listen to us. When we speak to him, that makes God sick. That's what the word abomination means. Study it. God hates it so much it makes him sick to his stomach. You might be objecting in your spirit saying that's not a loving God. Well, don't forget that while God is a loving God, he is also equally a holy God. And he resists the kind of hypocritical Christian that treats his throne like a genie's bottle. His very son, his only begotten son, died to give us access to the throne of grace. Yes, we, we pervert it when we expect him to come to our beck and call, even though we haven't answered his call for days. It's amazing to me how many Christians can go for so long ignoring God's word in different areas of their life, but then find themselves in a crisis and like Saul, they want God to bail them out. Parents that have stopped listening to God's word in matters of parenting their children. Parents that let everything come before God in their kids' lives. Parents who give their kids everything they want so if they throw a fit. Fathers that have the spine of a jellyfish when it comes to standing up to their rebellious children. Parents that are continually out-influenced by their child's peers. Parents that let their kids have almost uncontrolled access to social media apps in their room by themselves. And this isn't the case with every parent, but it is with some when they finally get to a point where they're reaping what they sown. Now they want to cry out to God, save my kids. When for the last four to six years, God's been crying out to them and they've ignored him. Youth pastor, work a miracle. Christian school, work a miracle. Pastor, preach a tough message that'll get my kids heart. No, mom and dad, you live the word of God. You teach them. You stop ignoring clear parenting principles in God's word. The audacity that we have as parents to say, God, bail me out when they turn 17 and don't love God, when for the last four or five years we haven't taught them how. And it's not just parents, young people hear me, I love you, but I'm going to preach to you tonight. Because some of you, especially if you're here on a Sunday night, have been told the truth from your parents for more than just one year, for years. There are young people in this room, teenagers, college students that have been invested into and preached to by their youth pastor for years. Yet you keep playing games with God. 
You act like you're listening, but you aren't. You hear God's word, but then you leave church and you never live God's word. Your selfish and, and sinful choices outside of church eventually will put you in a crisis situation. Because you didn't listen, you might get pregnant. Or you might get a girl pregnant. Because you didn't listen, you might break the law and get caught. Because you didn't listen, you might get drunk and make a fool of yourselves and your parents. Because you didn't listen, you might get told you can't graduate because you skipped too many classes. You find yourself in one of these crises and all of a sudden you want to come, come, come to God, go to his throne and claim that verse that he'll give me grace to find help in time of need. You almost want to ring a bell so that your maid shows up at your beck and call when God for years has been trying to get your attention and you keep saying no. God's word is so clear about financial stewardship. Very few question marks in scripture about how we should use our money. But even though he's so clear, we do our own thing. Then we get in a financial crisis and we tell our connection group, pray for me, we're broke. Pray for us, we're falling on hard times. When God's saying, I, I've been teaching you for years how to spend your money. Now you want to know? Believe it or not, there's things in this word that teach us about our health. How that our body's the temple of God. How that we ought to, 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 to leverage our health for kingdom work. Are you with me? But yet we abuse our bodies for decades upon decades upon decades. 10, 20, 30 years. And then wonder why we're broken down way too early. God, heal me of this and heal me of that. When God has said, I've taught you discipline. I've taught you how to steward your energy. I've taught you how to protect your time so you're not as anxious. But you didn't listen. The Bible's so very clear about we, how we handle relational difficulties. Offenses will come. It's part of the Christian life. But the Bible says when those offenses come, that we overcome evil with good, Romans 12. That we forgive. That we show grace. That we forbear. That we're kind and tenderhearted towards those that offend us and we forgive them. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. The Bible is so very clear. But when our bitterness drives us to a point of having no relationships at all, we look to God and say, God, give me a friend. God, fix my relationship. And God says, I told you to forgive years ago. And you ignored me.
See, the Bible likens God unto our Father. Hebrews uh, 12 or 13, our parent. What parent do you know after they are persistently ignored by their child will bend over backwards to give them whatever they ask for? God's the perfect parent. He doesn't spoil his kids. He has plenty of grace and love toward us, but eventually his gentle love will turn into tough love and we will face the consequence of hindered fellowship with him until we get things right with him. Could there be a more severe form of God's judgment on our sin than when he turns his ear from hearing our prayers? I'll give you one more verse. 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, ye husbands. It doesn't say ye wives. It says ye husbands. Dwell with them. That's your wife. According to knowledge. What does that mean? Understand them. And love her in the way that she feels loved. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together the grace of life. Why? That your prayers be not hindered. Isn't that enough authority to back up what I'm preaching tonight? There are things we can do by way of ignoring God's word. That hinder our prayers. Husbands, please listen. The word of God is clear. Love your wife. Give honor to your wife. Be gentle with your wife. Listen to your wife. Sacrifice for your wife. Understand your wife. When husbands ignore God's clear word, God will ignore a husband's prayer. See, the reason this hits so heavy for men particularly is because men have become so good at being heroes at church and heroes at work and heroes in the community and heroes on the softball team, but villains at home. Men have become so good at being gentlemen to every woman except the woman they live with. We'll listen to women we work with. We'll defer to women we work with. We won't take advantage of them. We'll help them. We'll talk quietly to them. But we'll go home and we'll veg out and we'll be lazy and we'll be irritable and we'll be short-tempered and we'll be distant and we'll be distracted or we'll be harsh with our wife. Men today work so hard at becoming good at everything in their life. They're good at what they do at work and, and they're driven to be good at their hobbies and they're good at grilling out and they're good at managing their money and they're good at hunting and they're good at fishing and they're good at golfing and they're good with their cars and their trucks and their boats. It seems that men are succeeding in every area of their life but they are still content to fail at home. They've mastered their trade, but their marriage is falling apart. Their business is thriving, but their wife is hurting. And there's a consequence for that, men. Your relationship with your spouse directly affects your fellowship with God. 
And no amount of church activity, no amount of success at work can make up for your laziness or your selfishness or your indifference in your marriage. Okay, pastor. If God won't answer my prayers after I've ignored his word, what do I do? Well, the good news is there's one prayer that God hears. And he hears this prayer at all times. You know what it is? It's the prayer of repentance. Never does he turn his ear to a prayer of humble repentance. How do you know? Second Chronicles 7. If my people, are you his people? Which are called by my name shall, keyword, humble themselves and pray and seek my face key and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear. Did you see it? Then will I hear. I feel like God is, he, you know he can hear, right? You know he can hear even the prayers that are an abomination to him. He hears them because he's omnipotent. He never ceases to hear what you say. He just chooses not to listen. But I feel like he's just waiting for one of your prayers to be the prayer of humble repentance. He's on his throne and he's thinking, oh, please, please, this time don't be a bail me out prayer. This time don't be that, like treating me like an insurance agent. I'll, I'll, I'll call you when I need to make a claim. Oh, please, this time don't treat me like you treat your spare tire in case of emergency. Oh, please tell me they're coming to the altar to say, I am wrong. I feel like God is saying, oh, please tell me that this time they're not asking for anything. They're repenting of everything. A prayer of repentance means you admit your sin for what it is. Prayer of repentance means you turn from your wicked ways. A prayer of repentance means you seek the face of God. Do you know that that's what Saul missed in this text? It's what he missed his entire kingship. When he realized God wasn't listening to him, he should have repented. But instead, he went searching for answers in all the wrong places. If you get to the place where God is choosing to not hear you, I'm telling you, I've seen it. You will be tempted to get mad at God. You'll, you'll be tempted to distance yourself from anything or anybody that is related to God in your life. And in a rebellious way, you will be tempted to run after the wrong things and the wrong places to find your answers. Oh, get this. It's never God's fault. It's your sins that have hindered your prayer. It's your sin that is wrecking your life. It's your own choices that has brought you to this consequence. That means you can't run to sin or you can't run to sinners to get your problem fixed. If sin is what got you here, sin won't get you out. You must repent. Here's the promise. God will hear. God will forgive. God will heal. God will restore. God will mend. 
all put together. God will use you again. He'll, he'll bless you again. Here's my last verse of the evening. James 4, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. What does it look to draw nigh to God? Here's what it looks like. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Doesn't mean just come to church. It means purify your heart, you double-minded. It doesn't mean just participate and praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit in three in one with lifted hands. It means be afflicted, sinner. It means mourn, sir. It means weep, teenager. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Oh, I like this. And he shall lift you up. You come to the throne of grace with humble repentance and you will not have to get up by yourself. You will find God's hand there of grace and mercy every single time. So long as there's cleansing and purifying and affliction and mourning and weeping and heaviness and, and humility. When you come to God with that spirit, you will be met with that spirit. He will hear and welcome the prayer of the broken. This isn't a hopeless story tonight. Why? Because we know the New Testament. <laughs> we know it. You're not a king of Israel. You're God's child. He wants restoration so badly. He wants to choose to listen to you again. You have to say, God, I'm sorry. No excuses. No minimizing. No thinking about another person who needed this message more than you. And shucks, they weren't here tonight. No thinking of that. It's thinking of me. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister. But it's me, oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. I've been burdened all week long for this text. And I don't want you to think for a moment that I'm angry. I don't want you to think I'm in the flesh. This burden, I feel like the prophet Jeremiah, when he said it's like a fire shut up in my bones and I'm tired of keeping it in, I've got to get it out. This was a word from heaven for this church tonight. And I've been sitting on this text for days, praying over this text. As faces of sheep in God's flock, Kept coming to mind. I would say, God, help him be there on Sunday night. Help him to get this, this time. Help him to know this message is for them. All week long, I've been burdened for this. And so if it's come out with, with a bunch of urgency, please, please don't, mis don't mistake that. I, I don't, I'm not angry tonight. I love you. I want our church to be healthy. I want our families to be strong. I want our marriages to be whole and complete. I want every one of you tomorrow morning when you wake up and go to the throne room of God, I want him to bend his ear, anxious to hear your prayer. Not going like this. 
Why? Because I want you to experience what that kind of relationship with God is like. It gets tiresome talking to a person you know and listening. It's stale. It's one-sided. The God in heaven, the king of the universe, wants to hear us all if we'll get our act together. If we'll say, God, I've ignored you for so long. And it's my turn. It's my turn to start listening. And before I expect you to bend your ear to me, I will commit to bending my ear and my heart back toward you. Please stand every head bowed and every eye closed.